people talk about lifestyle businesses as opposed to like high scale venture backed businesses. There's no such thing as a lifestyle business. Being a founder is a terrible lifestyle. Ever imagined you could be mentored and guided by some of the most influential leaders in business? That's where 40 Minute Mentor comes in. I'm passionate about making business mentorship accessible to everyone. So whether you're just beginning your career or you're looking for advice in taking the leap and starting a new venture, or perhaps you're scaling a rocket ship, this show is designed to cover everything from the ground up in the next 40 minutes. Today's 40 Minute Mentor is Alice Bentink, MBE, the co-founder of Entrepreneur First and CodeFirst Girls. She has helped launch over 300 companies and ignite countless careers since 2011. Alice started her working life at McKinsey before launching Entrepreneur First when she was just 25 years old. Over the past 10 years, she has become one of the most respected leaders in tech. And in that time, Entrepreneur First have launched over 300 companies worth over £2 billion in value, which is testament not only to her passion for investing in talent, but also to her tenacity in the face of adversity in the early years of growing EF. I loved talking to Alice. She gives a real insight into building a business from the ground up. She's refreshingly candid about the ups and downs of startup life, and she shares some great ideas about how we can improve diversity and inclusion in business. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and please enjoy listening to 40 Minutes with the inspiring and super talented Alice Bentink. Alice, welcome to the 40 Minute Mentor. It's wonderful to see you. Thank you for joining us. A real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Fab. Well, I want to kick off, as we always like to, with a 30-second review of your CV, but we're going to do it slightly differently with a few quick-fire questions. So if you could finish these sentences with whatever comes to your mind, that would be amazing. Are you ready? Ready. (laughs) Let's do it. When I was younger, I always wanted to be... Wanted to work with animals. I was totally animal-obsessed. I don't think a vet, because I think I was a bit squeamish, but uh, it's something with animals. Nice. I did hear that you were a goat lover. I mean, that makes it sound quite peculiar. I, I, was, I had a lot of pet goats growing up, yeah. <laughs> wow, amazing. I must admit, I was headbutted by a goat as a five-year-old, so I, it's taken me a little while to warm up to them I'm, in later I'm sorry life. to bring up such painful memories for you. <laughs> <laughs> My first job was? Uh, cleaning holiday cottages. Oh, okay. Interesting. Interesting. And when starting my career, I wish I'd have known. Oh, I think this is the, the hard one because I could, I could, you know, write a book on this. I wish I had known that I'm probably judging myself more than other people are judging me. That's a good one. That is a really good one. I started a business because? Honestly, because I thought I'd really regret it if I didn't. I was 25 and I sort of knew that I was in the time of my life where I had no mortgage, no kids, nothing kind of holding me back. I mean, apart from the total lack of experience, cash or anything else. Um, But I sort of knew that if I didn't try it then, I wasn't really sure when I would. And I thought it would always be something I would regret. I was 25 when I set up JBM and it is that screw it, just do it moment, isn't it? And I think it's what it's clearly worked brilliantly for you. So I think I think youth actually youth is helpful. We call it optimistic naivety that when you're younger, you go into markets and problems that you're so naive about, you can create something that has never existed before. Sorry about the motorbike noise. 
That's right. <laughs> so yeah, this idea of optimistic naivety where you have the opportunity to see things that other people can't see because you do have this kind of youthful exuberance about what you think the world can be. And I think that was definitely true for me and my co-founder, Matt. That is so true. That is so true. Thank you. And I'm most energised at work when I'm... Most energised at work when I'm working with our either the Entrepreneur First team or the um, Entrepreneur First companies. Um, I feel very, very lucky that the customer of EF are these insanely brilliant, insanely talented individuals who want to make a big impact. And so my job is getting to work with them on a daily basis and my amazing team that gets to work with them as well. So I feel very lucky that my in my job, I'm surrounded by very talented, very ambitious people who push me as much as I push them. Awesome. I can't I can't wait to come on to talking about the EF story, so we will get to that. But finally, can you share something we couldn't learn from your CV, whether that's a perceived failure or a setback in your career that you've learned from? I mean, the early days of Entrepreneur First were pretty bumpy. We've been going for 10 years this August, uh, but actually the first three years were pretty ropey. We had no money. We kept on running out of money. We kept on almost closing. We actually started, I mean, now our business model is venture capital, but we started off as a not-for-profit social enterprise and we just really struggled to make ends meet and work out. We knew that people wanted the product, but we couldn't work out the business model. And there were some very dark moments where we just didn't think we could make it work. Really? That's really interesting. Well, well, thank you. Well, I think we'll we'll definitely probe into that a bit more because I think there's probably a lot of founders and entrepreneurs that have been in that sort of situation and and some may be th- thrown in the towel. So it'd be interesting to know kind of what kept you going. But as you said, you, you launched Entrepreneur First in 2011 uh, together with your co-founder, Matt Clifford. What did inspire you to start the business in, in the first place? So back in 2011, there were very clear default career paths for ambitious graduates. And when we first started EF, we were focusing mainly on people who had just left university. And now we take a much broader spectrum of people. But one of the kind of things we were seeing very clearly was that why is it that in the US and in Silicon Valley, the aspirational career path is to become a founder, whereas in the UK, the aspirational career path is to become a consultant or a banker or a lawyer or whatever it may be, whatever sort of peer approved, parental approved, cultural norm approved career path there is. And that's what me and my co-founder Matt did. You know, we left university, we became consultants, we went to McKinsey and had a great time there. But I don't think either of us aspirationally saw becoming a consultant as what we wanted to do with our lives. It was just what really ambitious people did. And so the original kind of idea behind EF was, which has stayed the same actually the whole way through, even though our product has changed enormously, is the world is missing out on some of its most impactful founders just because they don't know that they could be a founder they don't think about it or if they are thinking about it there are a bunch of structural reasons that make it very hard for them to become a founder and the two that we really focus on are I can't find a co-founder who do I do this with how do I find somebody who's complimentary to me and then also how do I know if I've got a good idea we see so many people just not taking the plunge because they're noodling on the idea for so long and then they miss the opportunity you know either from a market perspective or from a a life stage perspective. So really it was, we know that there is so much latent founder talent across the world that is locked up in in cultural norms. Um, And today we're now in six countries across three continents. And it's amazing how similar that cultural norm pressure around careers is. And it's, you know, in Singapore, it's not necessarily going into banking or consulting. It's going into the, the government and the civil service, which is the most aspirational career path. 
So it's different in each country, but this idea that actually what you choose to do as an ambitious person is culturally dictated, I think is a really important thing to understand it and something that we're, we're trying to challenge. Yeah, love that. And you've really, you've made a huge impact in the in the tech ecosystem. Um, and I know some brilliant people that have been through the program and, and it's totally transformed their lives. So firstly, kudos to you. Can we go back to, I, I think one of the things I really like to do on the Fortune Mental is talk about the, the tougher times that you've come through, because I think that, that can really help shape you as an entrepreneur and leader. You alluded to some of those early challenges. Do you mind going into that a little bit more detail? And it'd be great to understand what you learned from that experience and what might be helpful for any other founders or entrepreneurs listening? Sure. So, you know, Matt and I really came to this totally clueless. And I think a lot of what we learned is now more widely talked about. The Lean Startup book that is now sort of so ingrained in everything that people do basically came out at the same time as EF. So we were sort of learning on the fly as that whole movement was coming out. But the first challenge that we had was we were going to universities and asking people whether they wanted to do this. And, and they really did. And that was amazing. We didn't expect that. Uh, I remember a slightly awkward moment where we were so convinced nobody would come to our first kind of talk in Cambridge that we tried to pay them to come to the talk. Oh, wow, really? And when we stopped trying to pay them and said, oh, actually, do you, do you want to be a founder? You know, if so, come to this talk. That's when they came to the talk. They weren't interested in being bribed to come along. <laughs> but the challenge that we had was that the customer market was saying, yeah, we love this. But when we went to the ecosystem, what we heard time and time again is, is you, you can't do this. This is not how it works. You can't take individuals that don't know each other. You can't take individuals that don't have ideas. They're just not going to be good founders. And there was such a strong status quo in the kind of venture and startup ecosystem that, you know, you had to have known your co-founder since you were in kindergarten. You know, you had to have been noodling on this problem for the last decade, all this kind of stuff, which for lots of people is true. But actually, there's a whole bunch of founders that that isn't true for. And there was just no offering for them. But what this meant was that, you know, we, we couldn't raise any money. We had a bunch of kind of amazing people who um, offered their time. But we couldn't work out how to fund this. You know, what is the business model behind this? And so our early business model was that we sold sponsorship to corporate sponsors. And so it, it didn't really work because we were set up as a social enterprise. But when you sort of said what our mission was, it's like, oh, yeah, you know, ultimate aim is we take these graduates and we turn them into millionaires. Now, that doesn't fit into most companies' CSR policies, unfortunately. Yeah, true. <laughs> our corporate sponsorship business model was largely getting corporate sponsors in once, them doing kind of one cycle and being like, oh, OK, we're not actually getting a huge amount from this product. And then them not doing it again. And the original EF cohort, we said it was going to be two years. Actually, it turned up being three months because that was all we could afford. Now, that actually ended up driving us to work out what does a really good three-month program look like, and that became the core of, of the, the future product. But that was, a, that was the kind of initial challenge is just hand-to-mouth existence. We spent money in bizarre ways because we just had no idea what we were doing. Remember very early on, we were very, you know, we were competing against these big employers. We needed to look as professional as possible. And so we spent £10,000, which was a quarter of our annual budget, on a bunch of leaflets. And these leaflets were the highest quality, like the highest grain, GSM, whatever it is you can imagine, beautifully, beautifully printed. When I moved out of my flat um, a couple of years ago, we still had all those leaflets because, of course, we printed like them that. and then we changed what we were doing and they were completely redundant. You know, we just, we just had no idea what we were doing. 
I've still got hundreds of business cards kicking around from eight, six, seven years ago. No one uses them anymore. They're no totally pointless. It's such, a, it's such a waste of money. Those poor trees. Those the poor, poor trees. trees, indeed. Um, <laughs> so that was the first challenge was around business model. And then the second challenge was actually making this work. So we knew that the customer very clearly, we accidentally did a lot of customer development, being on university campuses, really getting to know the people that we wanted to work with. And they were saying, yeah, yeah, great. So how do I come up with an idea? How do I find a co-founder? And we're like, cool, we'll work. How hard can it be? We'll work that out. Turns out it was actually really hard. And it took us three years, basically, to work out how to do it. And sort of accidentally, the first cohort of EF worked. People formed teams and came up with ideas. 20% of the companies we created went to Y Combinator that year. And we're like, wow, this is, this is so easy. The second cohort, we did more or less the same thing and nothing happened. Nobody formed teams. It all just, it, it became very clear it wasn't working. And there was this point where Matt and I had tried to put everyone into teams, sort of forced matchmaking. And there was a, a, a day one week, about sort of four weeks into the cohort, where one of the teams broke up. And then another team broke up and all the teams broke up. And we left the office and went for a walk around the block because we're like, wow, I think we've actually just wasted two years of our life. This doesn't work. We have no idea how to make it work. This is cool. Okay, so what are we going to do? This is embarrassing. By the time we came back from our rather long walk, the individuals had started forming different teams without our involvement or intervention. And that was such a core, that's basically now the, the core belief behind EF is that finding a co-founder is about testing different co-founders and about having the opportunity to break up and find a new co-founder very, very quickly rather than, you know, day one finding exactly the right person. So it was it was a, a tough time. And I think the there's so much ego wrapped up in building a startup that, you know, the idea that we were going to have to go back to people who said it was going to fail and have to say, yep. You're right. <laughs> it doesn't work. I think that's partly what uh, what kept us going for so long, which isn't always isn't always a good recommend motivation. I wouldn't necessarily recommend that. But by pushing through, and I suppose by watching what happened, by observing our customer using our product, we were then actually able to work out how the product should function. Brilliant. What a, what an interesting story. And you've you've gone on to launch over three hundred companies with a combined portfolio value of over two point seven billion dollars, which is unbelievable. A lot of focus will be, and we will come on to talk about the, the, the entrepreneurs themselves and the startups, but actually I'm interested a bit in the, the, the growth of your business, of EF. It's clearly gone through an evolution. How have you managed that over the years? Because it's clearly evolved yeah, over time. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, again, <laughs> growing a business is hard. And I think when I first started EF, you know, I have dreams of this huge company and, you know, so many employees. And now, Small is beautiful. Small is so much easier. So EF, EF did grow reasonably slowly. We didn't raise our first fund until we'd been going for about four, almost five years. And that was really a, a moment of growth for us. So for the first couple of years, we were around about 10 people. And then when we raised the first fund, we grew to about 30. And the 30 people stage is such an interesting stage. 10 is that more kind of family stage where everyone knows each other. I think everyone needs to come to every meeting. Everyone's involved in everything, decided everything together, very kind of collaborative. And then 30 is just at the point where you're beginning to see different groups form within the company. And you can't, at that stage, know everything that's going on. But actually, you do still know everyone really well. The stage that we're at now, which is around about 120 people across six different locations, and actually, particularly in the pandemic, where we've had lots of new people join that I've never met, 
you know, at this kind of stage. Bizarre. It's so bizarre, isn't it? It's much more about, okay, well, what are the systems, the infrastructure that you need to put in place to make sure that the company operates effectively, that I have the the view of what is going on in the company without knowing the detail or micromanaging or getting too involved. But we've had, you know, we've had all the kind of growing pains that you can you can imagine. And we grew to two sites when we were about four or five years old, which was um, the UK and, and Singapore. And that was sort of reasonably manageable. Two time zones, two kind of groups, two different cultures. I think what was challenging was being, well, and it is, like we've kind of worked out how to make it work now, but being in six locations with six different cultures and trying to work out, okay, well, how do you bring everyone together around the company mission? How do you make sure that the EF culture overrides the local culture in terms of how we behave, how we interact with each other, how we work? There's some really interesting research that's done. Um, I can't remember what the, there's one in particular that we used a lot that was looking at the cultural differences between the different cities that we're in and how things like decision-making, feedback, conflict are dealt with. And the importance of making sure that the EF values, the EF norms around behavior were super clear, were just so important to try and, you know, I think one of the most important ones was actually around conflict and feedback. Some cultures, it needs to be very direct. It needs to be very upfront. Whereas in other cultures, it's very much something that you, it's almost rude to be that direct and upfront about the feedback that you want to give. And we had to work out, you know, where is the EF balance on what we think is right for the company? Oh, it's so interesting. It's so interesting. And and, and talking about culture and talent, you invest a lot in people and their talents first. I guess it's kind of part of the, 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 of the philosophy of the business. So what are some of the key attributes and qualities that you look for in the entrepreneurs that you kind of put together and invest in? So it's something I've spent a lot of my time thinking about. As a talent investor, the first time we give somebody money, they they don't have a team, they don't have an idea, they don't have a company. We're just investing in their ability and and their their potential. We've seen hundreds of thousands of applications over the last 10 years. And um, we've now seen enough of our companies mature and get to Series C to really understand what are the traits that lead to not just short-term success, but long-term success. And we break it down into into two pieces we want to understand somebody's ability and also their behaviors what are their kind of ingrained behaviors i suppose the key thing with behavior is if you look at the research past behavior is such a strong indicator of future behavior and i think this is the one that particularly now startups and becoming a founder has become more popular more of the norm if you've decided today you want to be a founder and you've never previously shown any of the behaviors that might indicate that this is a good career path for you it's probably not you know if you've gone on a very Um, linear path through your life, a very culturally normal path in your life, actually then taking a massive leap, a massive change to become a founder actually may not be the right thing for you. So we we look very deeply at people's past behaviours. So let me, me, I can break down what we look at it within both ability and behaviour. And with both of these, what we're looking for is exceptional individuals. So what we want to understand is how do you perform compared to the rest of your peer group? And this is actually where the diversity piece comes in. And is a really important part of this because we want to understand who is your peer group who should we be comparing you to? Because if you know you've been to private school, been to Cambridge, you know, joined one of the, the top companies in the world, actually your peer group who we're going to be comparing you to is very, very different from somebody who maybe didn't go to university or dropped out of school and didn't do their A-levels. And so making sure that we're comparing people against their peer group is one of the most important things we can do to make sure that we do make robust, diverse selection decisions. So within Ability, what we look for is pretty simple, smart people. And we don't say clever, we say smart because 
I think clever is is more academic. Yeah, we like people with very strong academics and, and they often do very well. But actually, you need to be able to apply your cleverness in very smart ways. It's about problem solving, not about sort of academic thinking. If you think about the role of a founder, largely you are just chief problem solver every day, whether it's deciding what the product is and understanding the problem of the customer to, oh, my God, what are the regulatory requirements for running a fast it was running a venture venture capital business okay we need to learn that from scratch or um this person wants to quit how do i retain somebody when i've, I've never done that before so problem solving speed problem solving ability and um, that's how we we capture in smart and then the other thing we look for on ability is either technical skill so somebody who has built stuff in the past who maybe has a phd in a technical subject or somebody who isn't technical but understands how to apply technology understands how to be commercial about technology. And often it's something that they may have done in quite a hacky way growing up. So either they, you know, they're largely non-technical, but maybe when they were younger, they, they built and sold websites, or um, maybe they've been a product manager and have worked directly with technical teams. But we build software companies. And so having this either technical ability or the ability to think about tech in a very commercial way and know how to apply technologies is super important. So on the behavior side, I think that's where it's kind of some of the more interesting stuff. And ability for me is much more of a hygiene factor. Behavior is is where we really understand, okay, is this going to be somebody who we think could be uh, an exceptional performer on Entrepreneur First? So behavior, there's two things we look for. Are you an outlier and are you a leader? Why you need both of those is there's a bunch of outliers in the world that go off and do incredible things by themselves. The key thing about being a founder is you can't do it by yourself. You often need a co-founder, but you also need to take a team on that journey with you. So from a leadership perspective, we want to see that you've generated followership. I think it's very easy for people to say like, oh, I'm a leader. Okay, well, if you're a leader, show me who followed you. Where did you make a decision that was difficult or unusual and you took people on that journey? So it might be that you convinced somebody to do something. That's a form of leadership. Um, Or it might be that you actually led a team to, to do something and achieve something. On the outlier side, there are two things we look for. One is drive to achieve. And I think this is a really, really key one. You know, being an entrepreneur is so unbelievably hard. It is just, as you know, it's relentless. It's, uh, But you have to be the kind of person who is willing to get up every day, take the shitstorm that usually comes with being a founder and focus on trying to achieve something. And so we talk about drive to achieve because we don't want people who have just attempted things and it's fine if you've failed, but if you've always failed, it's probably not a good indicator. We want people who have failed in the past, learned from those failures, um, and then have achieved crazy things, often in like many different areas. So some of my favorite people, when I look at EF applications, they've been, you know, there was one application where this guy had been one of the, on the kind of Olympic GB youth squad to prepare for the Olympics, got injured and then went to Imperial, was top of their year at physics. Um, but then also released a dance music track that was sampled by one of the biggest EDM musicians in the world. And this is all before they're like 22. Um, so it's just like achievement after achievement after achievement. But then the kind of counterbalance to this is you need to be the kind of person that challenges convention. So if you've done that linear achievement where it is, you know, you've got good A-levels, you've gone to a good university, you've got a good job. Yes, you're achieving. But actually, at what point have you challenged convention, taken the unusual path, taken a risk? And that's the balance that we want to see. We want people who are constantly achieving things, but they're also taking unusual paths, taking risks, doing the unexpected. And we find that the combination of those kind of ability and behaviors pieces, they're very, very strong indicators, very predictive of who ultimately will be successful. 
I'd love to take this opportunity to share a podcast recommendation with you. How to Own the Room. Hosted by the stand-up comedian Viv Groskrop, it's a great listen for anyone looking to hone their public speaking skills, whether for real life or on screen, or just if you want to get a blast of confidence and inspiration. Viv became a stand-up after 15 years hiding behind her computer as a journalist and created this podcast as a place to share lessons about performance and pressure. They've had everyone, from Hillary Clinton, Nigella Lawson and Margaret Atwood, to influential voices in the tech world like Anne-Marie Imaphodon and Sharmadine Reed. It's a conversation unapologetically about women and regularly delves into why the gender gap still exists in virtually every walk of life. But men get to look in as well, as mentors and allies, like Succession's Brian Cox talking about the changing face of power, and Google's Matt Britton talking about mentoring. Check out How to Own the Room on all podcast platforms. You've always codified how, you know, what typically works, and you've done an amazing job of putting together talented people and creating these awesome companies. How did you know that you were Matt in the, in the early days prior to, to knowing all the things you know now? How did you know that you could build a business together? And in terms of complementary skills now and kind of how you run the business, how, how does that work? So I think Matt and I's story is very much the sort of the normal non-EF co-founder story that we met each other at McKinsey, which was our graduate job. We became really good friends and we decided that when we left McKinsey, we wanted to start a company together. Now, this is a very typical story that we hear, but there are some real challenges. So Matt and I's background is very, very similar. And actually, the kind of company that we could create was very, very limited because we had such similar skill sets. We would have really struggled to build a software company. EF is not a software company. The kind of company that we've built is actually much more similar to a consultancy, which was our, our background. And yes, we had to go on a really steep learning curve to become venture capitalists and understand how to raise and deploy funds. But the original kind of product of EF and, and still today is much more akin to a consultancy. You know, we work directly with the founders. We take them through this, this kind of methodology uh, on how to be successful. And I think the, the key thing here to note is that who you co-found with dictates what kind of business you can create. If I'd co-founded with you, we probably would have created something totally different when you think about the kind of combination of our skills and backgrounds. I like the idea of this, Alice. We're, we're, we'll talk about this offline and create something. Uh, Don't tell Matt. To create Don't the next that. unicorn. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that, you know, we've been really lucky that we, we've had a great co-founding relationship and, you know, we've worked together so closely for 10 years and I feel very lucky to work with him. And over the last 10 years, we've, we have worked out, okay, well, what are our preferences? What is the work that Matt prefers doing? What's the work that I prefer doing? And luckily, although we didn't know this at the beginning, there was a split and Matt is incredibly good at raising money. I think for his generation, he's, he's one of the best fundraisers out there. So, and that's both raising um, capital for EF, the company, our companies, but also for our funds. Um, and he loves that. He loves the process of going out there, converting LPs, converting VCs. And he's a brilliant evangelist and, and salesperson for EF. I actually don't enjoy that that much. Um, I am not a huge fan of that process. But what I really love is, okay, well, how do we make EF, the company work? How do we make the product work? How do we make sure that we have something that is effective and attractive for our customer? And so Matt's world is largely much more externally facing and much more focused around the fund. Mine is much more around operating the company and, and building and delivering the product. And so I was, I was in some ways just lucky. We never had a kind of explicit conversation about that. And I would I would very much encourage people as they go into a co-founding relationship to be 
very transparent about their preferences. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's really, really interesting. And as somebody that is a solo co-founder, I, I, I am envious, if I'm honest, that when I see successful co-founder relationship i can really see the value in that and it's only as the, our team is growing that i've really kind of come to really appreciate the importance of having some uh, aspiring partner and someone to throw ideas around uh, i mean i don't know how people do it without a co-founder i take my i take my hat off to you because it's so you know the the phrase it's lonely at the top you know it's particularly lonely as a founder at the top and having somebody who you can have an honest conversation with about how awful things are and like how nothing's working and you can't necessarily have those transparent conversations with your investors, advisors and employees, nor should you. But having that person who you can say, actually, I think I'm really down. I hate everything. And they can say, well, actually, why? Like, look at this great thing. Look at this great thing. Yeah, I, I don't know how people do it without a co-founder. It's very true. I, I'm I'm lucky. My wife is very much my sounding board. Different industry completely. But she's been here from the early days and backed me, you know, believed in me when uh, yeah, as a 25 year old, most people didn't. So I'm very lucky in that respect. But also, and we'll talk about it in a minute, mentorship. I, I'm very lucky and blessed to have had some wonderful mentors in all different shapes and sizes. I guess I've leaned on them maybe more than others because I didn't have that co-founder. And I think that's that's been very helpful to me. Uh, so I'm conscious of time and I really want to talk about DNI because it's something that I know you're passionate about and I know a lot of people listening will be interested. We know tech is sadly still notoriously male dominated, but I think things are improving. But can you tell our listeners a bit about Code First Girls, the initiative that you created and, and how that first kind of came about the great work you're doing? Sure. So Code First Girls is a uh, not-for-profit that's separate from EF, but was actually created by Entrepreneur First. And when Matt and I started thinking back to being naively optimistic, we're like, wow, tech's got a real diversity problem. Let's fix it. How hard can it be? Uh, it turns out 10 years later, it is really hard. Very um, hard. Yeah. <laughs> Matt and I one day were sat around his kitchen da- table back in the early days when we didn't really have an office. And we're like, well, okay, we seem to get lots of men applying to EF. Okay, so let's, how do we, how do we get women to apply to EF? I'm like, okay, well, computer science degrees, you know, we're, we're taking lots of technical people, but our universities aren't producing that many technical women. Um, you know, it was around the kind of 16 to 20% of women on, on computer science degrees. So we thought, okay, well, Surely if we just upskill women technically, then they'll become founders. So we started this kind of marketing campaign called Code First Girls, where we, we ran a summer coding school. And it was amazing. We got these incredible 30 women selected from about 200 applications and put them through this part-time evening course, teaching them how to do basic web development. And there were a couple of amazing things that happened from that. One, they created this amazing community. They created their own network where suddenly you know, if they were going to go to a tech conference, they would work out where to meet beforehand and then go as a, as a tribe together to whatever tech conference so that they didn't have that awful, like being the only woman in the room, walking in moment where somebody asks you where, you know, where they can get a drink because they think you're a waitress, um, which happens surprisingly often. Shocking. And then the other thing that was amazing was it really did change their career aspirations. So these were all non, largely non-technical women. Um, some came from sort of, you know, civil enge- engineering, but largely non-computer um, science-based women. It shifted their expectations around what they wanted to do in their careers to firstly, wanting to work in tech, secondly, wanting to work in startups. And for about five of them, they became full stack software developers. They decided to take further education after Code First Girls to actually become developers. Now, a couple of them did join EF, but actually it wasn't the kind of massive shift that we wanted to see from, you know, the reason women don't become founders isn't just because they aren't technical. So we decided to spin Code First 
out as a as a not-for-profit. We were very lucky enough to get Bank of America Merrill Lynch as an early sponsor who kind of made that happen. And now Code First Girls has taught 20,000 women to code for free across the UK. Uh, we run courses in 25 universities around the country. Through the pandemic, we now run all of our courses online. We now do nano degrees, which enable women to not just do a short, sharp, very intense conversion into technology for free, but also then to, to get a job at a big tech company at the end of it. So Code First Girls has done amazing work in terms of making young women aware of tech, giving them the confidence, the network, the language to be part of tech. We still need to do work on, on getting more women to be founders. So that's the that's the kind of the, the down yeah. not the downside of Covers Girls, but it solved one problem. It it just didn't solve the other. Yeah. Oh, well, I just think it's absolutely incredible and we need more of it, really. I mean, it, it, what more do you think can be done to promote DI and in the workplace? Uh, it, it feels like it's a topic that's being talked about more, but uh, there's still a lot of progress that needs to be made. Are there particular things in tech that you think any, you know, anyone listening, any founders listening, any investors listening to this could, could be doing more of? One of the questions I get asked most by our alumni is, how do we hire diversely? And I think one of the misunderstandings is around how much legwork you need to do to build a diverse team. So you need to invest. You need to invest money, but largely through somebody's time. So if you're recruiting for a role, it's understanding that you may need to reach out to diverse candidates two or three times more than you would for other candidates to convince them to apply to the job. There's some really interesting stats around uh, how people respond on LinkedIn. And you, you just need to contact and convince diverse candidates way more than you do non-diverse candidates. One of the companies in our portfolio, Nplan, has done a fantastic job at this, where they've almost got to gender parity on their engineering team, which is so unusual for a, for a Series A startup. And, you know, they're, they're doing construction tech. And they have invested so much time, headspace and money in building a brand, recruit a brand to not just attract diverse talent, but then once they've attracted them, make sure that they are embedded in the team. And it's a place that diverse talent actually wants to work. Alan Mosca, the CTO there, has done just a, an amazing job at this. So it, it can be done, but it has to be done thoughtfully and it has to be done with a real commitment to make it happen. The stuff that, that companies should be doing is... Um, uh, Things as simple as like gender pay gap analysis. You know, it's not that hard to do, but actually by doing it, it can give your company, give your employees a real sense of, you know, whether there is a problem, how they're being treated, and then making sure that you have, is the simple things that we all know to do, but lots of people don't feel they have the time to do. So diverse shortlists for any roles that they're hiring, making sure that they appropriately advertise for roles, making sure that there's fair promotion opportunities for internal candidates. So it's it's about being thoughtful. It's about creating systems within your company that give you the nudge you know what is the nudge when you're about to make a hiring decision that encourages you and the others in your company to make sure that you are following best practice you know startups are about speed everybody wants to move fast so how do you bake in these processes in a way that aligns with your willingness and, and need to move fast so much brilliant advice there alice i, I think um one of the things you said, which I think really makes a difference is you've got to really commit to this. And, and it, it's not an overnight thing is you've got to work on it and you've got to be thoughtful and you've got to put in the time and invest. Because we do see a lot of companies talking about DNI, you know, posting about it. But actually, when it comes down to it, they don't actually invest in making sure they can attract and retain that sort of diverse talent. And I think that, that really needs to change. So thank you for sharing your, your thoughts on that. Before we get to our last three quick wrap-up questions, I just wanted to ask about 
balance. Balance is, is hard when you're a founder and an entrepreneur, as I have found myself. And we know a lot of people struggle with that work-life thing. And we're seeing a lot of founders suffer from burnout. It, it's just happened. Interestingly, a lot in pandem- the pandemic where we've all been s- struggling to, to, to split work and home. How do you protect yourself from that? And do you have any advice for anyone listening to this that might be struggling with that balancing act? It's such a hard question. One of the principles I always have in my mind is that founding a startup feels like a sprint, but it is a marathon. I've been doing this for 10 years now, and I'm probably only now, and particularly I had a baby a year ago, and that has been a great forcing function for working out how should I spend my time and what is the right way to spend my time. I think one of the key things to remember is you do have to work really hard as a founder. Being a founder is not a lifestyle choice. People talk about lifestyle businesses as opposed to like, high-scale, venture-backed businesses. There's no such thing as a lifestyle business. Being a founder is a terrible lifestyle. And I think you do have to acknowledge that and accept that there are some things in your life that you won't be able to do because of the choice that you've taken. And one of the ways I've always thought about it is there's a sort of micro versus macro here. My day-to-day micro is pretty stressful and sometimes not particularly fun. But actually what keeps me going is the macro that what I'm doing with my career and my life, because it's not just my career, it's, you know, it's most of my waking hours still 10 years in is thinking or or working on entrepreneur first. But I love the macro. I love that ultimately the problem that I'm working on is one of the most interesting problems in the world. Our mission is to transform the lives of the most impactful people. Who who wouldn't want to spend most of their waking hours thinking about that? So I think as a founder, one of the most important ways to prevent burnout is to be truly obsessed and delighted by the problem that you're solving. If you love your customers and you love solving the problem for your customers, I find that gives me huge resilience and huge enjoyment. And, you know, as I was saying at the beginning, the thing that I enjoy most is is talking to our customers. And actually, if I've had a bit of a crap week, spending half an hour with one of our teams who either isn't doing very well and you, you know, you feel that you can really add value and change their trajectory, or one of our teams that's killing it, it's just the biggest boost. It really kind of reiterates to me why I'm doing this. And I think, as a founder, you've got to love your customer. Choose a customer that you want to hang out with. Choose a customer that when you're feeling down, you want to reach out to them and be like, hey, let's catch up rather than thinking, oh man, the, the thing I need least right now is like 20 minutes with one of my customers. So I think, you know, there's all the usual things that like, you know, meditate, which I don't do because I don't have time, which I'm sure is bad. <laughs> or like exercise, which I don't really do since I've had a baby because I don't have time. Or, you know, there's there's lots of kind of things that you can you get sleep, don't do that a baby spend a lot of time with my baby so broadly my life is is work or baby and the pandemic has been really useful for that and that I think one of the lifestyle mistakes that I made was we've got six locations across a very broad set of time zones you know from Toronto to Bangalore and we me and my co-founder Matt would be on a flight every week so I would be changing time zones by eight hours usually every fortnight and like that is no way to live it's no way to run a That's company. That's not sustainable, not... is it? Oh. Well, this is the way, having a baby. I've actually got more sleep and have, you know, haven't been permanently jet lagged. And setting up a way of working that enables you to be the best version of yourself as a founder, doing multiple time zone changes all the time. Actually, I don't think that I was a very good founder. I was so focused on being tired and just, you know, getting on the next plane, whatever it was, that I don't think it enabled me to make good macro decisions. So yeah, I suppose my, in summary, love your customer. If you love your customer, it will give you enormous resilience. And lots of people I know who started companies at the same time as me aren't necessarily still working on the same company 10 years later. And I think largely it's because 
actually, you know, the problem or the customer was no longer something that interested them, which is fine. But I think for this kind of long-term resilience, getting energy from your customers, it's just, yeah, it's the best. That really resonates with me, Alice. I think um, a lot of people, I, I hated recruitment when I <laughs> when I started my career. And then when I set up on my own, I realized despite the long hours and uh, many knockbacks that you get in, in, in any sort of sales industry, I get such energy and I really do love working with candidates and clients and it makes it really makes me want to get out of bed in the morning I never have Sunday night blues and I think that hopefully rubs off on our team and also clients and I think someone like yourself 10 years down the line I'm not surprised that so many brilliant people want to come work for you and through EF because you still exude that energy and positivity and that that is so good to see so thank you for sharing that um we're sadly at the end so I'm going to be really fast on these last two questions but we are on the 40 minute mentor do you have one and or many mentors and if there was one person in the world that could mentor you who would it be so yes the most consistent mentor advisor that Matt and I have both had is actually our coach. So we got a coach pretty early on. And I remember when we found out how much it was going to cost, we <laughs> sort of, you know, bleeding from the eyes moment. But it's been the best investment we have ever made. Our coach Lucy from People Untapped is just, she's been on the journey with us. You know, she's worked with us for years and years and she's seen and, and watched us develop. We actually had a session with her yesterday and, um, she, we were talking about some challenge and she was like, well, this is really interesting because do you remember when four years ago you did this thing? You're like, oh God, we're making the same mistakes. But just having somebody with that longevity of reflection who can force that reflection on you, encourage that reflection on you, um, has just been so immensely valuable. And then I think from a mentoring perspective, I think it's very much a mentor for the stage and problems that you have. So I've been so lucky and thankful to many people who Sometimes it's an hour. Sometimes an hour is all you need to change your perspective on something. And then there's a, a bunch of individuals now who spend a lot more time with, who particularly this kind of scaling a company stage, there's just a bunch of reasonably gnarly problems and, and challenges that are really useful to talk through, either much more with much more senior people or with people who are kind of at a similar stage to you. I'm actually part of a women's breakfast group of founders. I mean, we say breakfast group, but now largely it's Zoom and drinks, who are all founders at, at or work in tech at a, a similar sort of stage and actually they're an amazing mentorship group in terms of both so, so solving personal problems as much as business problems and then we're very lucky to have amazing investors who people like uh, Reid Hoffman who's the founder of LinkedIn who's given us an enormous amount of his time um, and being able to learn from one of the world's very best founders and investors you know was the first investor in Airbnb and just being able to learn from that experience and see his pattern matching pattern recognition has just been absolutely incredible awesome and is there one person that you would want to be mentored that you haven't ever met before or that you admire from afar oh i don't know i wonder if that would just undermine all my current mentors i, I feel i feel very lucky with the the broad range of mentors that i that i have a lot of people would want reed hoffman as their mentor so you i guess that 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 in itself is 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 very good and and given all the success you've had come the end of your career when you look back what what would you want to be remembered for EF is about transforming people's lives and helping them rethink what they do with their careers. And I would love to be remembered for building an institution, you know, whatever happens to EF in the long term. I think we can say we have had a huge impact on thousands of people's lives. I hope for the positive. And I hope that that can be, can be a, a positive legacy. 
so yeah and, and working on a product that genuinely changes people's lives is such a such an honor i feel very very lucky to to do it wonderful uh, and finally before we finish up for any listeners out there inspired by this conversation thinking about starting up their own business what final piece of advice would you leave them with get going most people won't most people want to be founders want to start their own thing most people won't and often the thing that's holding you back most it's not money um you can start in your spare time it's not knowledge you can if you start you can gain the knowledge it's not network if you start you'll gain the network the only thing holding yourself back is 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 you and making time for your next venture so do it that is a very inspiring place to end. Alice, thank you so much. It's been an absolute joy and um, we wish you all the very best with the years ahead. I have no doubt you will create many more brilliant companies and, and, and continue to make such an impact on the tech scene globally. So thank you for all you do and yeah, wishing you all the best for the rest of the year. Thanks so much for having me, James. I've really enjoyed it. Cheers. I really hope that you enjoyed that episode of the 40 Minute Mentor and if you did, please leave us a review and tell your friends so we can continue to bring you awesome interviews from inspiring entrepreneurs and business leaders. Please also feel free to reach out at info at jbmc.co.uk. Thanks again for all your support.